Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I had a very special first. We recorded our first live podcast with Center for Science and the Imagination and their TV dinner series. So our colleague Joey Esrich from Center for Science and the Imagination invited us to be the guest panelists at an installment of their TV dinner series. And here's how it works. A group of people come to a theater, they get a sandwich and some, you know, chips, like a bagged lunch kind of thing, and sit and watch an episode of a science fiction program. And then there's a panel that discusses it afterwards and uh, then takes audience discussions. So Joey asked Andrew and me if we'd like to come and discuss an episode from the series Fringe, which which is uh, a J.J. Abrams series. And we said, of course, we would love to, and we'd love to make it part of the Future Out Loud podcast. So we did. Now, if you want to recreate the full experience for yourself at home, you might want to put this on pause and then go out and find season one episode nine of fringe which was called dreamscape and this is of course available on i think i downloaded it from itunes because i was not a fringe watcher before um you know before this uh, podcast experience so or you can just dive right in and what you'll hear is not the episode but what you'll hear is the conversation that andrew and i had with joey as well as with the audience in the theater so it was great it's a little bit of a longer episode than normal because uh, we wanted to include the audience questions as well um, but we hope you enjoy it and please this is a great time um you know, after you listen to this episode, let us know what you think about the live podcasts. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you want us to do more of them? Um, we definitely want to hear from you. And you can let us know on Twitter at Future Out Loud or on our Facebook page, which is Future Out Loud. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the Future Out Loud podcast, you can do that at iTunes or on SoundCloud or Stitcher or Google Play. You can always tell your friends. And now on with Center for Science and the Imagination TV dinner series. Hey, Joey. Hi, Heather. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Hello, Center for Science and the Imagination TV dinner crowd. So this is our this is so exciting because this is our very first live podcast. So thank you, Joey and Center for Science and the Imagination at ASU for having us. We, for podcast listeners, just watched Fringe, first season, episode nine. nine. And what was it called? The again? Dreamscape. The Dreamscape. And Joey, you chose it. Why did you choose this? I did indeed. Uh, so uh, I think this gives you a really good feel for the show. And uh, as I've said to everybody here, to you two before certainly, uh, I think it, it blends nicely this sort of corporate hegemony, biotech, uh, sort of a 60s counterculture vibe with a police procedural. 
And I wanted an episode that pushed in all those directions and without getting too much into the show's mythology, which can be pretty uh, labyrinthine. So I, I thought that this would be a good introduction that would really give people a sense of the energy and feel of the show better actually than the first episode or two. Right, so J.J. Abrams kind of went like, what happens if Woodstock met Law and Order? Like, go. Precisely. Right? Yeah. yeah. So the issues around corporate hegemony, um, that was something that when we talked about this before, you really, really like were, were stuck on that. What, what draws you about that? Uh, I'm frequently stuck on that as, as guests, <laughs> guests, frequent guests to the TV dinner now. Um, so, you know, actually, I mean, I wanna, I'm going to throw this back on you like immediately, you and Andrew. Um, I feel like there's something, you know, timely about thinking about a corporation like Massive Dynamic, which like, you know, I mean, not to single them out, but like Google's Alphabet feels like this sort of sure. uh, kind of uber corporation, mega corporation that controls a lot, but perhaps has its, its fingers in a lot of really important things. We don't learn so much in this episode, but you know, biotech and the human body and health uh, are really important, but they're also very complicated. People don't necessarily understand what the corporation is doing or maybe the underlying science and technology, the sort of patent framework, all this stuff. And this is inherent in these um, big cyber companies, which, which I feel like I know a tiny bit more about. But I, you know, I, I felt like this was a good way to get into this issue of like, how do you deal with risk and corporate accountability in an environment with a lot of opacity. Yeah, go, well, go ahead, risk man. I, I guess I'm the risk man. I, so I, it is fascinating, isn't it? Because we do live in a world where there are these massive multinationals that seem to have power beyond that that we can comprehend, certainly beyond that that governments seem to be able to control. Um, and I think the really interesting thing here is you get this vibe that Massive Dynamics is not a good company they are not out there to make the world a better place, to make people happy. Um, in fact, I'm not entirely sure what they're out for, apart from some nebulous idea of power. Um, and that, I'm actually struggling to think of a company in the real world that has that same sort of vibe. Probably some of the more military-oriented companies out there. Alphabet is a little weird. Like the, the angle on Blackwater, you know, X number of years ago. That, that's years that's ago. right, yes. But it does raise this really difficult question of, how do you actually deal with those companies? Very clearly we're seeing um, that governments find it very hard to control companies like this. And the larger a company gets, right. the easier it is for it to sort of squirm through the regulatory loopholes mm -hmm. and actually do what it wants to do. And to interact with the government actors, right? That, you know, there was that, just one of the stories was this idea that uh, Massive Dynamics had been trying to recruit Olivia, right, right. who is a government official, um, and there was obviously a long-standing communication there and quite a bit of back and forth, right? Well, you even you got the connection with her previous partner, um, John, who was dead but in her head somewhere. Right, exactly. Um, who was obviously, he had this sort of rather sort of shadowy relationship with the company. Yeah, that, I, I think that is, is an issue that's really tied into this and shown up in a lot of movies in different ways recently in a lot of pop culture. The one that comes to mind is like The Big Short, which really emphasizes mm -hmm. the way that financial regulators and people in financial companies are really right. socially and professionally uh, entangled with one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it is something maybe people are becoming more aware of this idea that there's like a kind of traffic between the private and the public, perhaps between the licit and illicit and fields like cybersecurity with white and black hat, black hat hacking. Right. And again, it, to me, it gets to this 
opacity where it's like people in that community perhaps have a sense of all the relationships and how complicated they are, but the rest of us don't see that. But of course, here's the complexity. Because if you're in a government agency and you're trying to regulate really complex science and technology, you've got to have the insights to know exactly what it does and what's going on. And you can't do that if you're not cozying up to the people that are generating it. So how do you develop that, that transfer of knowledge and intelligence while still having appropriate firewalls in place? It is really difficult to do. Certainly, if you sequester yourself off, you don't have those insights that you need to regulate appropriately. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, when we talk about um, really the the rise of most of the technologies that we use today, it's that, you know, military, university, private, you know, interplay, that triad that, that goes just round and round. Um, we wouldn't have cell phones today. Right, right. Right? And, and so, this is, so I find this fascinating because most good tech we have, there is that, that collaboration. There is not that sharp demarcation between governments and industry and right, academia. Right. People work together. Right. Um, and it works really well when it works. The trouble is what happens when it goes a little sour or a little bad or a little nefarious. Um, and that's where I think things get really murky. And, and that's exactly what we saw here. Heather, I wanted to actually ask you, I've been waiting to ask you, is there something unique about you know, the medical industry or biotech that maybe intensifies these issues of the regulatory difficulties, the... No, they really are out know, to get our money. The, the sort of... <laughs> <stuff. Yeah. laughs> well, you know, I think it's... I, I wasn't surprised when I watched this episode that they selected... The space of biotech that they selected was the brain and, uh, and memory because that is intrinsically opaque. And yes, I know that we have this brain initiative at the federal level where we're mapping the brain. Woohoo! That's great. We don't even know what it is that we're mapping. I mean, we can go and Lewis and Clark this situation as much as we want, but we don't even know what it is that we're mapping. So I felt like that was the right. perfect um, that was the perfect context to illustrate this opacity, you know, in the science and also then in the business proceedings. So can I actually jump in and ask a, a question there? Sure. That I have other things to say about the medical writing on this show. Right. You well, can imagine. we could say all sorts of things about the writing on this show, but we're not going to go there just yet. <laughs> um, but as the medical person, I mean, so we have this thing which we rely on so much inside our skull, our brain. And as you say, we really know very little about it. What does that say about where we should be starting to fiddle with it? So you've got the whole sequences there with injecting Olivia with goodness knows what to put her into a, um, an unusual state. How appropriate is that? Or should we be way more cautious with what we're doing inside there? Yeah, you know, there's a real controversy right now, particularly around um, research with psychoactive pharmaceuticals. And, and PCP is, is one of the big ones. And then there's this whole, like, community of ayahuasca, I think that's what it is, not from experience, only from the New Yorker article about it. Um, and you know, there's, there's certainly, there's anecdotal evidence to be, uh, which is evidence, to suggest that there is medical benefit to be gained from some of these psychoactive compounds. But, and this is a problem, and it's a problem with uh, it's a problem with cannabis as well. The way that it's regulated in the United States really, really constrains and almost prohibits our ability to do 
research to right. do that organized systematic science so that we can learn and understand in organized ways that we can then go out and apply into the world. So we're actually forced into fringe science, I guess, because we're not allowed to do some of this. Right. So I, I've got to say one thing there because I'm doing research on this at the moment for stuff that I'm writing. I was blown away to discover that with smart drugs, you've now got folks in Silicon Valley sprinkling microdoses of LSD onto whatever they eat each day. So they're actually dosing themselves up yeah. with a really weird cocktail of things. Right, exactly. Like a little LSD in your chocolate pudding? I know, um, yes. And yeah. the day suddenly becomes brighter. Or certainly different. Or, or colorful. <laughs> yes. Or something, <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, it's a real it's a real issue, and there are real constraints that regulation places on science. We like to think that basic science is science for the sake of learning, and we do it in an un unconstrained way. Um, but really, we don't. And there are very specific regulations. I mean, uh, you know, again, back to the FDA labeling, and it's it was a very political decision. This came about last year. There was a movement to get uh, to get marijuana rescheduled from FDA Schedule One to Schedule. Two, which would really, really accelerate our ability to do controlled research with it. And I mean, it became an issue for, for Congress, really. Like, it was involved in the, in a, the legislative branch, um, and which raises questions like, what should the legislature be doing about the FDA and its regulations? On and on and on. But, um, you know, it, it's really, we're placing at a government level, we're placing controls on what science we can do. And then we sh should be, if we were going to carry this conversation out, we should talk about, um, you know, synthetic biology and CRISPR-Cas9 and these kinds of things. And what kinds of limits should we be placing on, you know, one of the things that I like about the, the series and the little inter bits is, you know, the apple with the, like, twin embryos. And yeah. yeah, yeah, which then, you know, calls to, to mind the notions of synthetic biology and where we could be going with science if it were unconstrained. Do you, I mean, is there, I was wondering also about like the history of, and again, I'm, all I'm doing is throwing questions to you two, but because I, I don't know anything. Uh, I wanted to know that, you know, sort of this sort of fringe science uh, world that this show lives in to a certain extent, is there a history of like fringe science, like, you know, like as the show uh, depicts it, people people in boxes hooked up to electrodes, does that then kind of filter into the like licit or legitimate scientific community in various ways? Is there like a, is there like a history of this of this kind of practice sort of leaking into what we consider the scientific mainstream or consensus? Sure. I mean, <laughs> I, listen, so I practice in cardiac electrophysiology and like the first EKG was um, a guy with his feet both in buckets of saline, right, as conductance. And that's how we, that's how we sort of understood how electricity, uh, cardiac electricity sort of travels and is, is capturable throughout the body. And one of my favorite things, so um, my husband is an interventional cardiologist and does cardiac catheterizations. And the first cardiac catheterization was a guy, like, literally jammed a catheter in through his own femoral vein and like threaded it up to his heart. And I think the story goes that he knew that it was in the right place when he felt some palpitations and knew that the catheter was bumping up against his heart wall. And then he, as I, as the story goes, literally went 
up or down a flight of stairs, like traversed a level in a building to then go and x-ray and like demonstrate that he had done this. So, I mean, I would think that if I were in that room, I would feel like that was kind of fringy at the moment, right? right? But now it pays my mortgage. So so you, you can trust the medical sciences to really, sorry, forgive the fun, being on the fringe of this. But, but I think that's where a lot of this has come. But if you look at the other sciences as well, so I'm a physicist, I'd spent, what, 15 plus years in the lab. Um, and the whole mentality of scientists is to do really weird stuff out of curiosity. So there's always this battle between the things that you really want to try, just suck it and see, and the people telling you, no, that's not a good idea. Um, so, for instance, chemistry, I think actually chemistry has, has got its act together quite a lot over the last 10 years or so. Um, but the mark of a really good chemist, you go back 10, 20 years, was blowing stuff up. And if you hadn't lost your eyebrows and your hair, you weren't a good chemist. That's right. Also, if you were still alive past age 50, you like hadn't been pipetting by mouth quite effectively enough, I, I know. Right? You, you really just weren't, a, weren't up to the job. Right, I, right. You can only say that because you're a physicist. I know, of course. Yeah. But, but there is, but, so there's definitely this culture of really trying weird stuff and getting very resentful if somebody tells you you can't. On the other hand, I think that there is, in most areas, an innate set of ethics that says some things really aren't very good. So experimenting on other people, right. even though we've actually got a history of doing it, it's not a good thing. Well, and we did have a couple of reasonably well-written scenes on that where, you know, the expert comment, he kind of couldn't stop talking about how much he liked to take psychoactive drugs and would rather be doing that at the moment, right? But we had that, um, you know, the scene outside, was it the bedroom door or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's a hotel room. Um, where right. he, you know, said, listen, I love taking these drugs, but I don't feel that this is safe. So that's where his like ethical. He had his own internal compass yeah, there. Yes. Yeah. The, the other thing, you know, speaking of this, but, but the other flip side, I guess, of this fringe science coin that, that the show made me think of, and this is really an assist to you, Heather, for bringing this up in the first place, is recovered memory therapy, mm-hmm. which is very, I mean, like what you see in the show is the human memory is like this rich, totally accurate source of insight as long as you can get down to the level of wherever the memories are stored, right? Fully it's a kind trustworthy. Of, it's a kind of yeah. geological metaphor. It's like you dig deep enough, you get the right memories. They're in there. And uh, that's an example with recovered memory therapy uh, that, you know, that was kind of a, a, a sort of a fringe or, or subculture within the psychological community and became this really misguided, you know, mass movement. So it made me think of the other side of kind of looking to the fringes for innovation in science. Yeah. Well, the thing that that struck me about this notion of like the fidelity of memory, like it's in there, so that's what it is, um, calls to mind all of the problems that we run into when we foreground memory as a primary source of evidence in our criminal judicial system, right? And I appreciated that they had, you know, her saying, oh, a little off the chin, yeah, that's the Latino guy, you know, and P.S., I appreciated that they did have a Latino character in the entire thing, and there were, I think by my count, two African Americans total in the whole thing, and otherwise it was like white, 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 and white. Um, yeah. So, but beyond that, that you know, they were taking her memory, which was somebody else's recovered memory, and I thought it was interesting that 
the, the idea that she could step in and observe his memory in a third person rather than in a first person and cinematographically, I believe that is a word, uh, I understand why they would have made that decision for the show because otherwise it's just looking out his eyeballs and then that actor doesn't get his leg day or three days of SAG time and I get it. But it just struck me as like, this is really problematic, this notion of the fidelity of memory uh, as, as a source of evidence. So, and of course, we know that it doesn't have fidelity. So if you just look at research on cognitive bias, mm -hmm. We know that our brains are incredibly good at taking in garbage and making it look normal and, and rational. Right. Um, and so our brains are incredibly good at just taking little bits of information and creating a whole story around them. That story may have nothing to do with reality, but That's we right. believe it. Or on the converse, I don't know who has, wakes up in the morning with this experience, that you took perfectly normal inputs and came up with some crazy town thing you know, and that you With the wake dreams. up. Yes. Exactly, yes. yeah. Yes. And it seemed normal at the time. It, <laughs> yes. Well, maybe, maybe. Right. But, and again, you know, foregrounding this idea and, and the problems, well, they didn't highlight the problems of memory fidelity, but memory as a source of criminal evidence, I think is really problematic, and I kind of wish that they would have poked at that a little bit. I'll let J.J. Abrams know for next time. So what about risk? That's why I also just want to go back to risk. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, you and I talked a bit about the show as a kind of like, you know, lens through which to look at risk. Yep. Uh, I, I was starting to try to puzzle out as, as, as we watched it here on this, on this lovely big screen, what the show's kind of attitude to risk was, like how, like the landscape of risk it's set up, right? Is it, you know, it seemed almost to me like there's like a high, um, high capacity for risk. Everybody was kind yeah. of highly risk tolerant in this, in this universe. There is, actually. So it's pretty ambivalent to risk, but that's actually a good thing. So when I look at risk, and this is a bigger part of my world than I ever wanted it to be, I was never interested in risk, but I just get pushed in that corner. Can you tell us, can you like give us a baseline definition too for, for folks? I, so I was going to, well, yeah, so I, I'll give you my definition of risk. So. The work that I do, I get very frustrated with how people think about risk. And we tend to think about risk as something bad that we've got to avoid. And the only way we can avoid it is to be dead. Um, and so if we don't want to be dead, we've got to realize there's got to be risk in our lives. So what we do is we think of risk as a threat to something that's really important, a threat to worth or threat to value. And that's exactly where the program goes, actually. So you look at Olivia deciding to go back into the tank and um, really plumb her, her memories. She's making a risk-benefit trade-off. She's not saying, I'm not going to go there because it's risky. She understands the risk, but she can see the benefit in doing that. What she risks is her sanity, her life, and her just sort of going off crazy at the, the deep end. So that's something that's really important to her, but what is even more important is actually trying to pass that out. Um, and you see that with, with other characters. So, so Walter, with his um, lab and his crazy mucking about, um, you can see inside his head, what's really important to him is doing really interesting things and actually satisfying his curiosity. Um, and to take that away is a bigger risk to him than what might go wrong. So you can actually pass the, the, the program out and look at each character and think, what is the most important thing to that character? 
And therefore, what is the biggest risk to that character? It's not going to be their life or the environment or money. It's going to be somebody taking away something that's really dear to them. And that leads to their motivation in their actions. It's a very different way of thinking about risk, but I actually think it's really helpful and, and insightful. It, yeah, I mean, I, well, dare I say, it's an innovative way to think about risk in the Risk Innovation Lab. And, I, and I, I have to explain to people, so I run the Risk Innovation Lab, and we're not just thinking cra uh, crazy new ways of experiencing risk. Right. We're actually thinking about crazy new ways of thinking about risk. Right. And I think it's interesting, and I think this episode did a nice job of illustrating how individuals' risk tolerance may shift over time Yes. Um, in the space of, you know, a 44-minute program. But it's example. also different for each person. So to Olivia, the, her sort of risk tolerance was very different from those around her, but Absolutely. she was the one with the agency. She was the one that got to decide. Until the end, when Until, he decided yes. for her. Yes. Yes, that it was too risky. Yes. So, and that negotiation of risk, who's, who's, uh, whose definition of risk matters the most? An awful lot. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, you've said enough positive things about the writing <laughs> program, Heather. What? What's the bad science writing that you referred to up front? I think we all need to know. Okay, so we haven't used needles to inject drugs in the hospital in a really, really long time, like more than decades. And so that bothered me as a nurse. Um, the one thing though that um, I did an obvious, so this idea that one can psychosomatically, you know, create lacerations like is Don't burst my bubble. It's not true. It's not yeah. true. It's <laughs> not true. Plausible. That said, that said, I think any healthcare provider will tell you that. I mean, listen, we've all seen people who reach a time when they decide that it's the end of their life, and they close their eyes and they're done. We've all seen that happen, um, and so there's something to be said for uh, psychosomatic agency. Uh, at, at the end of life. Um, you know, we've, uh, every, anybody who has been with a person when they die, um, at, whether in a professional capacity or in a personal capacity, I think will, when you stop and think about it, we'll, we'll see where a person decides that it's time. Sometimes that doesn't work for people, but I've you know, I've seen it, I've lived it enough times that I really felt like, yes, this was an extreme and cartoonish way to represent that, but I I feel like there's something there. Do you think that there's kind of a, I'm, I'm wildly speculating here, but do you think there's a kind of, pe some maybe people are more attuned to their biofeedback in a way, like maybe some people just kind of know, and so there's a sort of like dialogue between the mind and body saying like, things, you know, the clock's ticking, basically. I mean, that seems, because some people are more aware, like long distance runners are like very aware of certain aspects of their body rhythms in a way that most of us aren't. Sure. I mean, I remember one gentleman who I took care of at the end of his life, which was quite prolonged. This was years and years and years ago when I was a staff nurse. Um, but I remember the last probably day and a half before he died. I mean, I remember him looking around the room and looking in corners of the room. And I remember that his estranged daughter called him during that time. And I remember like holding the phone to, you know, in the, in the room and he wasn't speaking of course at that, I shouldn't say of course, like you all knew, right? Um, but I remember, 
I remember after his daughter called, and it wasn't an immediate thing. I mean, that would be perfect for, you know, a 44-minute long television program. But I do remember, um, I do remember him stopping looking around the room and shortly after that, you know, he, when he closed his eyes, his eyes stayed closed and, and he did die, you know, within a few hours from that. Follow that. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that you're burning to say before we go to questions, either of you? Windows don't shatter that way. Oh no! I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything about. I'm sorry, this. it's the physicist in me. You Tell can't me about jump it. out yeah, of windows. Right on us, yeah. yeah. How do windows shatter? Well, they don't, don't especially if they're double glazed. You try and break a double glazed window, you cannot. Those butterflies were chasing him. <laughs> He's moving really fast. <laughs> I tell you what, try this. I do it on a ground floor. Just try running into a window and seeing what no, happens. No, you know what? Everybody <laughs> try this on the way. Let me tell you. Okay, if you're going to do that, have somebody with 911 already pre-dialed for don't, you. Actually, just, don't do that, but trust me. Yes. In front of the cardiac nurse. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think maybe we should take some questions. Okay, yes. I just want to throw in one quick thing, which is that Joshua Jackson was sublime in this, just like he always is. You can see him just out-acting everyone on screen. It's beautiful. Anyway. <laughs> Any, any Dawson's Creek fans here know what I'm talking I, about. I did appreciate, it follows through. Yeah. I also appreciated that the massive dynamics lady, the like corporate like in it for herself lady, we later find out is the corporate in it for herself Martha Stewart character on Orange is the New Black. So, <laughs> I mean, wait, like she's, she is, and you know, I'm watching my husband say, oh, that's where I knew her from, yes. Um, uh, but yes, I appreciate that she is true and her agent is true to shopping her in for the right character, so. Beautiful casting job, Abrams and company. Yes. All right, and with, with that, let's, let's take some questions. Uh, so Bob right here will actually run a microphone to you so we can actually catch it for the recording. Hi. Oh Hi. wow, that was loud. Uh, my name's Kate Avey and you mentioned from a medical perspective, we still don't uh, understand a lot about the human brain. Mm -hmm. So with companies like Elon Musk's Neuralink coming out where they're looking to implant technology in the human brain in order to uh, enhance our memory and more directly um, interface with computing devices, what are your thoughts on that from a medical and ethical perspective? Oh, great question. We are big fans of Elon Musk here at the podcast. Um, it, Take that with a pinch of salt, but we talk about him no, a lot. No, we do. I mean, yes, we appreciate all of the fodder that Elon Musk provides for us. Um, and I like his cars very much. Um, so, yeah, medically, we don't, I really, now, caveat, and this should be clear, not a neurologist, cardiac electrophysiologist. However, in the, in the hierarchy of things, the brain still trumps the heart, right, for like importance of organ. Thus speaks um, the scientist, but yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm not comfortable that we know enough about where we, how we, how memories work. And now, I believe me, would love, 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 love to have a technology that allows me to retain more memory. For example, paper is helpful for that, or my smartphone is helpful for that. Um, medically, I can't say that I would encourage any human to have a memory enhancing device implanted in their brain. And I, you know, the longer I stay around in this field at the university and, and security and intelligence research, 
I would worry about a company implanting a thing in my brain that was designed to capture memories. And, you know, listen, Bluetooth is really, you know, a nice technology that gives access. But not access. that secure. Yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting to ask, how many of you have had a phone that's either had a bug on it or had to be reset? You've had to restart it because it didn't work. Okay. Mm -hmm. How many of you have had a computer or phone or something that's been hacked or compromised or got a bug in some way? Mm -hmm. How many of you would put one of those in your brain and expect that every few weeks you have to reset your brain? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so that answers it. It's really, I mean, it's fascinating technology. And in fact, um, just a, a tidbit, Elon Musk got it from the, the Scottish science fiction writer Ian M. Banks. Um, who really wrote a lot about the idea of neural laces, but in his science fiction no novels, you actually grow these laces so that they're an integral part of the, the brain. Of course it, you do. It's a lovely idea, um, but it's an idea way beyond our understanding and our time. And this is going to sound flip, but like the, the terms of service, I feel like, would be really right. important. I mean, we're finding with... <laughs> right. <laughs> seriously, for... With, your with your neural lace is obsolete. I'm sorry. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, things from the John Deere tractors to Nest thermostats to, you know, all of these smart appliances that we're getting in our houses, uh, things that talk to you, they all are bundled up with privacy in terms of service agreements that are pretty complicated. Right. And I f feel like, to me, we have to have a better regulatory conversation about terms of service and, and making things readable and comprehensible for the average person before we can start implanting things. Because right. most people don't even understand what they're signing when they get you know get their iPhone or it, sign it's up. It's a little contract. Yeah. A little scary if you just sort of click I accept. Yeah. Yes. Or people also don't understand what they're signing when they're like signing the informed consent for, you know, surgery or a slightly invasive diagnostic procedure. So yeah. Don't do it just yet. Yeah, not yet. No offense, Elon. <laughs> get your listening. lawyer bot first before yeah. you have to get that bot in your head. I think we have another question back there and then one up here. Hi, so I have a question. So the three of us are all PhD students in the Biology and Society program, so we have some crossover with, with, with SFIS. And all three of us sort of made a gasp of horror when you talked about innate ethics for scientists. Um, so I wondered if you could expand a little bit on what you meant by that because all three of us were like uh no because he's a physicist <laughs> okay, first, so you first. have to understand that so first. physicists are perfectly ethical i really don't know what you're talking about <laughs> let's define one of us one of you define the concept of innate ethics for yeah, the listening I, yeah so yeah. I, I was being a little loose with the language there um but <laughs> certainly I, if you look at science in its purest form uh, there is a, a sense that scientists are driven by curiosity and the desire to know, but they also have their own individual internalized sense of what the boundaries of acceptable uh, knowledge creation and knowledge exploration are. Um, and that comes in part just from the culture around science, in part from the, the, the constructs um, and the restrictions that we put around science. Um, so, and I, I'm going to sort of say where this sort of runs out of steam, but I think if you talk to most scientists in most labs, they will tell you that they are ethical because they've got a good idea about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate within their world. So that's the innate ethics. The problem comes when they make those ethics up, that they define their own rules and say, I'm ethical because I'm living by my own rules. And that's where you've had horrendous unethical behavior in the past, all the way from <laughs> eugenics to if you're in public health, the uh, Tuskegee, um, absolute 
um, awful atrocity or with in the Oval Office. For yes, example. well, yeah. I wasn't even going to go there. Oh, um, well, but but, I, but, but just look, but just looking at what scientists have done in the past, where they thought they've been behaving ethically, and with hindsight, they absolutely haven't. But in most cases, they think they're doing the right thing. So that's where I was getting at with the innate ethics. But of course, you can't just live off what you think is right. Do you feel better? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question down front. We'll talk about that more afterwards. All right. Um, you talked about uh, fringe science interacting with uh, authentic science. Um, and quite often, there's been past, past instances with scientists, such as people who looked into cold fusion and other such categories where they're considered fringe or extremely out of bounds because they violate certain known laws. Um, my question is, do you think it's acceptable for scientists to still look at stuff, even though it breaks current understanding of laws, or is that... Yeah. Because it seems like there's a, there's a force that says when they're looking into something that is breaking current known laws, then it's got to be wrong. So I, I think it's actually a really good question. Um, science is incredibly conservative. Despite everything that we're told about science pushing boundaries, actually science does it very, very slowly. And the only way it does push boundaries is by people stepping over those boundaries and asking the impossible questions. So there is absolutely um, a place for that sort of thinking. But at the same time, you have to be careful. There has to be deep rigor there. You can't just make stuff up. Um, and the danger is that people forget about that rigor. They think maybe it's okay to sort of ask wild questions and research them. Maybe it's okay to assume that we can travel faster than light. Maybe it's okay to think that we can develop the warp drive. Those are good questions. Or maybe it's okay to sort of say we can develop a time machine. Those are good questions, but if you don't bring scientific rigor to it, they just go out on flights of fantasy. And not only do they not get us anywhere as a society, they actually damage us because they give people false hope as to what they think can happen that actually can't. I feel like this gets to your value, our value conversation from earlier too, because if research is publicly funded, you know, if you have somebody looking into, you know, string theory and, you know, multiple realities research in a physics department, some of the question is like, where's that funding coming from and what kind of other research is it displacing? It'll be at least as a kind of outsider to this kind of stuff. I imagine that the politics of research priorities and funding yep. kind of stresses this question of, of, of where do you get into those kind of more I, so, boundary pushing skills. So there's definitely a question of accountability. On the other hand, if you're too accountable, you just squash any sort of creativity um, in, in science and research, and there's got to be creativity there. Um, so one of the, the ways I think about this is in any sort of funding regime, there's got to be a pot of money set aside, 10%, 20%, whatever, for the really wacky ideas to allow people to explore um, what is not mainstream. So like DARPA crazy. Yeah, but not necessarily DARPA. But, not, but, but right, but, sure, not necessarily but, defense. Yeah, related. science create. I mean, if we could sort yeah. of have a, a DARPA just for ordinary scientists rather than trying to find ways of dominating the world and doing weird, nasty stuff. Okay. Not that DARPA does all nasty stuff. But not that regular <laughs> science doesn't do that either. Right. Right. Uh, you know, another thing. I guess, I mean, illustrating your point from the other side, you know, from the other side of what I was bringing up in the first place was something like cancer research, which I know right. I've heard a lot of conversation about in the sort of science press anyway, is like we're locked into a sort of slash and burn chemo-oriented regime. Right. Research dollars continue to go to kind of refining by tiny fractions of a percentage point the effectiveness of those treatments when perhaps these more path-breaking approaches are, are, are going to yield better results in the long yep. run. So I do think 
there must be a push and pull. And maybe, it, again, it varies by field, like just like the risk calculus we were There's talking about. There's a push about. and pull. And we've seen recently, uh, in the last few years, this notion of right to try. And here in Arizona, there was, um, was it was it a public? There was a ballot initiative, I think, um, about right to try. That, uh, What's right to try? So the right to try is that uh, patients who are, you know, have a terminal diagnosis, people, not patients, people who have a terminal diagnosis and have exhausted the available, uh, you know, FDA cleared medical therapies. Um, if there is an experimental therapy that is, yes, still experimental and maybe not even available in an organized clinical trial, that people should have the right to try that experimental therapy if it is perhaps the last, you know, hope for them to save their lives. Um, even if it is outside of the bounds of this system that we've laid out to uh, help to protect safety for human subjects in science. So th there's just another aspect to that that it's worthwhile bringing out, and that is we often fall into the trap of thinking of science as being very utilitarian, that it's always got to be for a very practical purpose, making us better, making us more money, stuff like that. There's a really strong case to be made for science that just gives us a sense of awe and wonder. Um, and I think if we lose that, we lose some of our soul in how we actually fund and, and support and, and do science. So forget about sort of whether it's going to make somebody richer or better or faster or smarter. Think about just with some things how it expands our knowledge of ourselves and the universe and our sense of awe and wonder. I was actually, there's a physicist that we work with at the center sometimes. Uh, her name is Vandana Singh, and, and she has sort of this thing about like it helps us to understand like the cosmos, for example. She's right. a theoretical astrophysicist helps us be more deeply human like yep. her sense of what it means to be human you know as an intellectual and as a she's a fiction writer too and as a physicist is that our curiosity to, to her is 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 essential like i, our I would agree our consciousness into the universe and the world we have time for one more question i think given how long we're taking okay, to we've had <laughs> do we have uh, one Bob? up there because she she's had her hand up down can okay. we do two more because we're try to no can we two. do two let's yeah, do two okay i'm jake hi jake and my question is where do you see scientific collaboration slash boundaries going between public and private sectors in the near future? And do you see science as becoming more privatized or public? Good question, Jake. I mean, I see, I think that there is, here's what we're seeing in the public sector is there are increasing mechanisms to engage with the private sector, between the public sector and the private sector in explicit ways. Um, I think that we saw that around World War II very explicitly, and then we got away from it and tried to divide between public and private, and now I think we're seeing a trend toward public-private partnerships again. What do you think? Uh, no, absolutely. I think there's a very strong place for public-private partnerships. Um, I think we've got to be careful to make sure that we do uh, robust science and trustworthy science there, but I think absolutely we've got to be working in that space. What, what, what is the argument against public-private partnerships? Is there a credible argument sure, against it? Because I always hear praise for it and rarely the other side. Yeah, I so just would like to have the straw man at least So this is a problem that comes up in pharmaceutical research, is if pharmaceutical research is funded by tax dollars, right, and the basic research for the molecule is funded by tax dollars, then that molecule gets licensed out to a private company that develops a drug and does all of the research and development to bring a drug to market and then starts charging 
spending, say, I don't know, $875,000, you know, for a course of drug to cure, say, hepatitis C, which might, say, be an issue right now. Just as an example. Just as an example. Um, you know, this is constraining the public's ability to access this drug, this really important therapy for which the original molecule was paid for with taxpayer money, and now Medicare and Medicaid patients can't access this drug because the private corporation has priced it out of reach. So, for example. There's also the question of incentives. Um, if you incentivize um, discovering certain things or going down certain pathways, um, you disincentivize discovering other things and going down different pathways. Okay, last question. Final question. No pressure. So uh, I was really curious about the, um, you know, like you mentioned before, p you're seeing patients kind of, you know, like give up and they, they die soon afterwards. But, you know, the mechanism of action in this, in this episode was more of like a fear-based thing. And obviously someone who has heart problems or some sort of endocrine uh, problem, you know, then maybe that could have more of an effect. But is there, are there any known examples of anybody that's healthy dying of fear or dying of like a bad trip or something? Um. I'm sure that there are examples. I'm trying to think of some. Um, we know that, well, there is a phenomenon where uh, grief can um, cause heart failure uh, in people. It's called broken heart syndrome or Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Um, that doesn't often, that's not like a sudden death phenomenon. Um, so I, yeah. there are certainly anecdotes, um, and over the years they sort of um, surface, especially around witch doctor practices in, in the African subcontinent. Um, but in most cases, to my knowledge, those have actually been discredited. The idea that um, psychosomatically you can end up harming yourself or even dying um, because you feel somebody's cursed you. Right. But I, the other one thing I will say is that I think that um, the notion of uh, deciding that you're done is not the same as giving up. I think that it's making a choice for a lot of people. And I have not had the experience of being in that position, so I can't say, I can't pretend to understand what it means to know that you're facing the end of your life and to make that choice. But I think that from what I understand from being with people who have, I do think that it is an active choice that some people choose to make. So um, I would, you know, Joey, thank you so much for inviting us to be here with you. To, to talk crash about your party. Really, like, really fringy series. I mean, I'm glad that they chose the word fringe for it because while it certainly evokes, you know, the roaring 20s and then, you know, the love in 60s, um, I feel like the early aughts was, again, captured in a very fringy way. So I'm glad that you trusted us to, you know, maybe talk us a little bit through this weird situation on the screen. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you both going on this ride with us and helping elucidate some of the issues behind the show. That's what we always try to do here at the TV dinner series. And I, I, I feel like I understand the sort of intellectual architecture of the show a little bit better if I can use that. Phrase. I do too, actually. So thank you. And I hope that everybody here who's stuck in with us, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. 
Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.